Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Nicenes and nice people, welcome to another episode of Clarifying Catholicism. You're watching part three on a series on the history of the ecumenical councils according to the Catholic Church. Today, we're covering the Council of Nicaea. Much of this information was gathered from Joseph Kelly's The Ecumenical Councils of the Catholic Church, A History. So if you want an in-depth dive into these topics, please be sure to pick up a copy of this book. To see the rest of our episodes, check out our playlist in the description. Without further ado, on to the show. Last episode, I mentioned the persecution of Christians started by Diocletian in the year 305. One of Diocletian's major acts as emperor was dividing the kingdom in two and then resigning. Uh, this caused a lot of infighting among his government Civil war broke out with seven claimants for the imperial throne, one of whom was named Constantine. Constantine was a pagan who claims to have had a vision before a major battle in which he saw a Kiro, or the first two Greek letters in spelling Christos, juxtaposed on each other. He saw this as a sign that the Christian god supported him. Before heading into battle, he had all of his soldiers put the Kiro on their shields, and they won. After coming into power in 313, he issued an edict that let Christians worship freely. Much evangelization ensued. But the emperor had faced a new and interesting situation. So in the past, the emperor acted as an ambassador to the gods, meaning he was responsible for regulating the pagan religions to ensure that all was well between his kingdom and that of the gods. He carried this mentality over into his relationship with Christianity, though he still considered himself a pagan for much of his life. He still thought it was wise to ensure that Christian churches produced unity for his empire. For example, when there was a dispute in North Africa over who the Bishop of Carthage was, Constantine rather forcefully intervened. Eventually, in 319, Constantine himself converted, which cemented his desire for Christian unity. It also imbued him with a spiritual role among Christians. Now something else significant happened during his reign. He moved the capital of the empire from Rome to a new capital city he'd constructed, called it Constantinople. Knowing that the four major bishops and their dioceses, Rome, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria, all claimed that their authority came from their apostolic lineage, Constantine basically invented a story that Constantinople was somehow connected to the apostles because of a martyr who died somewhere close to the area. This would cause much division in the future, as we'll see in future episodes. During Constantine's reign, there was a theological fire that was spreading throughout the empire. Christians are monotheists, right? They only worship one god. How could they claim to be monotheistic and worship both God the Father and God the Son, Jesus Christ? Several theologians had several different answers. Uh, one answer from the Romans, interestingly enough, was that there was no distinction between God the Father and the Son. They're exactly the same. This was later called monarchianism. Others went the opposite direction. To justify the worship of God the Father and God the Son while still calling themselves monotheists, Many theologians believed that God the Father was superior to God the Son. The apologist Justin Martyr even called Jesus a secondary God. And believe it or not, but in the early Christian church, this was the prevailing school of thought. And it was later called subordinationism. Eventually, an Alexandrian priest named Arius derived a rather problematic logic from subordinationism. 
For he recognized that if Jesus and God were really distinct, and Jesus was subordinate to the Father, and Jesus suffered as a human for our race, then perhaps Jesus wasn't God at all. In the divided Roman Empire, some regions spoke Latin, others spoke Greek. This language barrier between the two regions complicated a lot of debates about Jesus' divinity. This is because a word translated from Latin to Greek, or vice versa, often wouldn't exactly capture the same meaning. Think of the word konnichiwa in Japanese. A lot of people would make the mistake of just translating that as hello in English. But the word konnichiwa is only used in the afternoon. They have different greetings for different times of the day. Now take a complex theological issue like the nature of Christ, and you have Greek metaphysical terms that have no real Latin equivalents. Think of it like translating a modern term in chemistry like photosynthesis to a recently discovered tribe that speaks a different language and has no point of reference to modern chemistry. This is a bit of an extreme example since the Latins and Greeks shared many philosophical similarities, but you can see how it would be difficult to get Christians from across the Roman Empire, which was quite culturally diverse, to agree on a common theological terminology. Anyways, uh, back to Arius. His solution, again, was that Jesus Christ was subordinate to God the Father because he simply wasn't divine at all. Arianism quickly spread throughout the eastern half of the empire. This division angered Constantine and inspired him to call together what would be later recognized as the first ever ecumenical council, hosted in the city of Nicaea. This council predominantly consisted of eastern representatives. In fact, the bishop of Rome, Sylvester I, only sent two priests to represent him. Though it should be noted that the Emperor Constantine's theological advisor was indeed a Westerner as well. The council's solution to end divisions was to derive a creed that all representatives from across the Roman Empire could agree on. So after much discussion, they came up with a creed that today is called the Nicene Creed. The formulation of this creed proved to be very controversial. Its incorporation of Greek philosophical terms, such as homoousius, or what we translate as consubstantial, was criticized by conservative bishops. And while the West was poorly represented at the council, most scholars agree that the important terms, such as homoousius, were proposed by the emperor's Western theological advisor. So the council settled on the terminology that would allow for Jesus Christ to be equitable with God while allowing for a distinction between the two. This is where we get the terminology of God as two persons, father and son, united by one substance. Nicaea also settled a few other matters, such as the date of Easter and a few minor schisms occurring throughout the empire. Nicaea is also significant because it set a few important trends that would govern how other councils ran. When making a theological declaration, for example, it would use a structure of issuing canons and use the language of anathemas. Like I said before, councils were often a response to threats to Christian unity. This meant that their official response to such threats came in the forms of commands of what Christians were not allowed to believe. For example, the creedal statement at Nicaea concludes with this, and whoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begotten he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he is a creature or subject to change or conversion, all that so say, the Catholic and Apostolic Church anathemizes them. So basically, if you believe in anything the church just mentioned above, you're out of the church. 
This is called excommunication, which is precisely what happened to Arius. I mentioned in my previous episode that conciliar teachings are usually not made for the sake of arbitrarily grabbing power, but were a response to an existential threat to Christianity. And this is a great example. Had Arius' teachings been allowed to spread, it would have compromised Christ's divinity altogether, and we'd probably have a very different theology today. But Nicaea also set a very important, but perhaps more overlooked, trend. One council's solutions are another council's problems, and we will explore this in our next episode. Also, uh, legend has it, at this council, Santa Claus right here, yeah, he, uh, he slapped Arius. He, he slapped him real good. Thank you.